Okay, we will be reading today from Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 to 31. You can follow along in your own Bible, but it is printed in the booklet for you. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood I said to you, Live! I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck, and I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places, where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered cloths to put on them, while you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as a fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, and you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At every street corner you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbours with large angels, and aroused my anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too, because you were insatiable, and even after that you were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants, but even with this you were not satisfied. I am filled with fury against you, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, 
You are unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. It appears that humans can't live, excuse me, without hope. Are you like that? Uh, Interviews of people who survived concentration camps uh, and prisoner of war testify to the fact that the only people who survive them normally are people who have some sort of hope. Hope is what makes a difference for those sort of people between life and death. If there's no light at the end of the tunnel, then despair sets in. And despair, when it's fully blown, leads to nothing. Suicide. Death. We die of hopelessness. Now, some people are just sort of glass half full people, aren't they? Whatever they see, everything's rosy. They're just hopeful sort of people. But when I talk about hope, I'm not talking about the insignificant hopes, just that nice positive way of thinking about life. Say, I hoped I wouldn't get wet today coming to uni. I was wrong. Who cares? I'm still here. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something much more substantial. Hope is having something to live for. Because if you're hopeless, then you're in despair, aren't you? And when you're in despair, well, that ends up being fatal. Now, some people just like the posters. They put these on their screensavers and up on their walls. Hope is seeing the light in spite of being surrounded by darkness or You never know what tomorrow will bring. Well, you don't, do you? Or maybe you can just get back up. But hope, hope that keeps you living, is more than that. It has to be more than that. But because we need hope to live, our hearts tend to manufacture hope. Hope of a career. Hope of a relationship. Hope of travel. Hope that there's something beyond study and assignments and group projects and exams. That's what's keeping you going at the moment, isn't it? Hope that it will be over one day and there's, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We manufacture hope. We can't live without it. The advertisers know that. It's all about selling hope. It's not the product they're selling. They're selling hope. This sort of car will give you that feeling. This bank will treat you as a person, not as an ATM. Uh, this supermarket will make everything feel fresh, even if it's in a can. This travel will be as exciting as life can possibly be. This toothpaste will give you the confidence to go and talk to that man. But most of our hopes are as substantial as the morning mist that evaporates in the the harsh light of day. Most of them don't even eventuate. Most of them don't deliver, even if they do eventuate. But we're so addicted to hope that even if it doesn't deliver, we reach for the next one. We listen for the next promise. We need hope. Well, Ezekiel, the prophet of God, comes to the people of Israel, the exiles in Babylon. And his message, at least his message at first, centres on hope. But not to build it, to demolish it. He's come to demolish false hopes, insubstantial hopes. And that's painful. That's confronting. That's what we're going to find. But absolutely necessary. Because the only path, says God, through Ezekiel, to real hope is by demolishing your false hopes now. Just a a recap. The timeline, just if you weren't here last week, 
When does Ezekiel come? Well, Ezekiel is prophesying in these years where that red circle is, 597 to 537 BC. You weren't there, you don't know what's happened to you. But Judah has been conquered by Babylon. And they've carted off the elite into exile across in Babylon. And that's where Ezekiel is. We zoom in a bit. These chapters we're looking at today, chapters 44, it's 4 to 24 of Ezekiel, come in a period of about six years between 593 and 587. While these exiles are living in Babylon, Jerusalem is still standing back in Judah. And they're hoping that because the, the temple is still standing, Jerusalem still survives, that there's hope. Just to get a look at the map, you can see where Judah is. Can you? In Jerusalem. That's what their hope is in. But they're across in Babylon, Nippur, by the Kibar River, the canal, the irrigation canal out in the middle of the desert in Babylon, in Babylonia. Now, Ezekiel's a bit of a communication whiz. I guess if he was here today, he would have used uh, 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 Twitter and uh, Snapchat and all those things I don't know how to use. But he used instead things like street theatre. Once he tied himself up like a prisoner and led himself out of the camp to, uh, to portray exile. He has visions, dramatic experiences of being transported from there back to Jerusalem to see what's happening in Jerusalem. And parables, arresting parables like the one that we just read from chapter 16 that pictures Jerusalem like a, a young baby that grows up to be a wife and a prostitute. The structure of the book, just so you orientate yourself a bit, last week we looked at chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 4 to 24 is all about God's judgment on Jerusalem. It goes down and down and down. And then comes a few chapters where he addresses the surrounding nations, talks about them and God's judgment on them, the Babylonians, Tyre and Sidon, Egypt and others, until news comes that Jerusalem has fallen. And then, and only then, Jeremiah starts to preach hope, real hope, substantial hope, hope that is worth looking forward to. And finally, in the last eight, nine chapters, he paints a picture. God gives him a vision of what this new hope will look like and feel like. We're looking at chapters 4 to 24 today. If you find today depressing, good, you're meant to. But come back. There's more to come, including real hope. Now, Ezekiel's message centres on two issues. What is coming? And why it's coming. Firstly, what is coming? What is coming is that Jerusalem is going to be besieged and destroyed and all the people in it slaughtered. If you've got a Bible with you, come back with me to chapter 4. If you haven't got a Bible with you, or a phone, or whatever it is you're looking at, just listen and pick up what's going on. Chapter 4. God says to Ezekiel, now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. So he gets some clay that's still soft and and something sharp, a stick or something. And he scribes an image of Jerusalem with the temple and the palace and recognisably Jerusalem. He's in front of people who know Jerusalem. They used to live there. They would see it and understand what it was. And then he's told, lay siege to it. This is street theatre, but it's, it's done in miniature. It's like playing with Lego or Jupla. And he, 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 to this picture of Jerusalem, he, he's to besiege it, put things around it, a, a ramp up that soldiers could get in and demolish the walls and break into Jerusalem and destroy it. So imagine the effect on people. What did you think when Tim was doing his stuff over there? <laughs> 
Did you recognise what he was building? Did you see the convention centre? BHP Billiton with the, that funny structure on top. Did, did, did you recognise it? Do any of you think, is that us? Is that Perth? And then when he got the mallet out and smashed it to smithereens, what do you think he was doing? Well, if you were there when Ezekiel did it, you should have worked out what he was doing, shouldn't you? He's telling you what's going to happen. Now, please, this was not a prophecy. This was just something to give you the experience. Don't think, I haven't got a word from the Lord that Perth's about to get destroyed. Just relax for the moment. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 4. Lie on your left side and put all the sin of the people of Israel upon you. Bear their sin for 390 days, lying on one side out in the open. For over a year he was just to lie there, bearing the penalty for the sin of Israel. Each day representing a year, 390 years. Then he's to roll over and do for another 40 days, 40 years for the, the sin of Judah. And he's to take wheat and millet, but he, he, he can only eat about half a kilogram of it a day. That, that's siege rations. That, that, that's almost, it's hardly survival rations. How much water? He, he's got half a litre of water a day. That's all he's got to drink. And he's to cook his food on human excrement, to use that as the fuel to, to cook his food on. Ezekiel actually objects. He says, I can't do that. That, that. That's just abominable. And God relents a bit and says, well, get some cow manure, use that. But if you watched him, if you took notice, you would have, well, your heart would have sunk you would have started to realise what he's trying to tell you, that something is going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be besieged and destroyed. Chapter 5, he goes on. Now, verse 1, Son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, shave your head and your beard. He would have had a a full head of hair and a full beard. He was a Jewish man, 30-something years old. Shave it all off, divide it into three, burn a third of it. A third of it, get a sword out and sort of whack it with the sword and a third of it just throw away. Just throw it to the wind. It'll be scattered everywhere. And God interprets his actions. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary, talking to the people in Jerusalem, with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I'll not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls, and a third I'll scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. This is street theatre. This is sign acts, showing people what is going to happen. You see, Jerusalem, the fact that it's still standing, is giving these exiles over in Babylon hope. Yes, it sucks being in exile. You miss your family and there's no more garlic. You've just got to sit out by the, the river. But while Jerusalem stands, God is with us. It's going to work out. They've got some backstory to this. Back in about 706 BC, the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem. And miraculously, God saved it. 85,000 of the soldiers around Jerusalem died overnight. And and, um, Sennacherib, the the Assyrian general, hightailed it back home. It it, it was incredible. God had saved Jerusalem because in Jerusalem was the temple. And the temple was where God lived. And while the temple was there, while God lived there, surely he was going to save it. So if the temple still stands, even though we're in exile in Babylon, God will protect us. It's all going to be okay. Somehow it'll turn out right. 
And they kept bolstering their spirits and keeping despair at bay. We can get through this. Surely we can hope. Surely it'll turn out okay. She'll be right, mate. But in chapter 8, Ezekiel is given a vision by God that helps him understand what is going to happen. In chapter 8, verse 1, In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, and the, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked, and I saw a figure like a man. From his waist down, he was like fire. Up there was bright as glowing metal. This reminds you of chapter 1, if you hear last week. The, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And he stretched out like what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head, and the Spirit lifted me between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me all the way to Jerusalem to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, that is, of the temple, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I'd seen on the plain. He sees on one hand the glory of the God of Israel in the temple, and on the other hand he sees this vile image, this idol of another God. Totally contradictory. Here is the idol in the temple itself. And in the rest of chapter 8 and 9... Ezekiel is taken on a tour of the temple and he sees not just that idol but many other idols. He goes in the public areas and also in the secret hidden tunnels and we're told that everything he sees is utterly detestable. You can't get a a harsher word than that, can you? Detestable, abhorrent, disgusting, horrible. That's what he sees, these images of other gods, these, uh, these gods of the Chaldeans and, and others. But the, the vision he receives comes to a climax, to, to the point of it, when God begins to leave his temple. So chapter 10, verse 1, I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim. That, that, that's the, the throne of God that he saw in chapter 1. The Lord said to a man clothed in leather, go and... Uh, in among the wheels uh, beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals. Uh, And then verse 3 and 4. The cherubim was standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in. Verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. Starts to move out of the temple. In chapter 10, verse 18, it moves further out. Verse 18. The glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. That is, on this chariot throne. In the vision. And I watched, and the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And then chapter 11, verse 22. 11, 22. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped them up the mountain east of it. And the Spirit then lifted me up and brought me back to the exiles in Babylonia in the, vicinity, in the vision given by the Spirit of God. See what happens? He sees God leaving the temple. The temple was only a temple because God dwelt there. When Solomon had dedicated the temple, they saw God, the, the, the glory of God anyway, come and settle in the temple, reassuring them that that was God's temple. It was no longer just a, a block of bricks. It was the temple of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And now God has left the temple. It's now just a clump of bricks again. It's just mortar. It's just stones. It means nothing because God has departed. And if God has left, if he's abandoned his temple, then God will no longer protect his temple. Their hope is demolished. 
God will destroy the temple and Jerusalem, the city in which it lives, and slaughter all who dwell in her. But it's critical as we hear this, these disasters that God talks about, it's critical that we understand that this is not simply another disaster like other disasters. See, the world is full of disasters, isn't it? Just in the last month, earthquakes have hit Mexico, buildings collapse, people being killed, rescue efforts flooding the place. Hurricanes have swept through the Caribbean, one after another after another. Mass shootings in Las Vegas, people just randomly shot and killed. Plagues, killing people across the world. They're disasters, but they're sort of random, aren't they? They, they just happen. It's part of life is the way most people would interpret it. But this is not like that. When Jerusalem falls, it's because God is against her. Back in chapter 5, verse 8, that's what God says. Chapter 5, verse 8. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I'll inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. See, to have God against you is much worse than just a disaster happening. Because if God is against you, what hope can you have? Who can do anything for you? Who can protect you from God? Can anything save you from the hand of God? Nothing. No one. However many degrees you ever get from UWA, they cannot protect you from the hand of God if God is against you. Now, if that's what's coming, why is it coming? Why is God against them? Well, in the vision he sees in chapter 8 to 11, it's clear it's because of their religion. God shows Ezekiel the religion of the people of, of Jerusalem. And it's not that they're atheists. They're very religious And it's not that they've abandoned Yahweh, the true and living God, the creator of the world. It's that they've added other gods to Yahweh, the true and living God. It's still God's temple. They're still carrying on with the rituals of their religiosity that God had commanded them to carry on. But on top of that, they had idols there in the doorway. Images of other gods on the walls. In chapter 8, verse 14, he talks about the god Tammuz, a Sumerian god of vegetation that makes everything grow, therefore of fertility. Now, what this is called, the technical term, is syncretism. It's not swapping one god for another. It's adding gods. It's a very modern way of doing life. Whatever might help you, whatever might work. God's good as far as he goes, but don't put all, all your eggs in one basket. God's good, he'll do things for you, but crystals or yoga or something else, just just add those because maybe they'll help you as well. That's what idolatry is. What, What is an idol? An idol is something that you put your hope in. Now, some of them are physical. They're they're images that you put up on a wall or in a shrine. They're uh, a statue of the Buddha or or other images of gods and spirits who might be able to affect your life and bring good fortune to you. Talismans and rocks or good luck charms or anything like that. Some are physical, representing spiritual things. Some are just spiritual. The superstitious forces that we might bow down to or the ancestors that we pay homage to or saints who we hope will get us closer to God. Some are less obvious, though. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that greed is idolatry. Now, greed isn't an image, is it? What's greed? Greed is wanting things that money can buy. Our word for it is materialism. Fairly common sort of thing, isn't it? That's just what our whole society is built on, isn't it? Materialism. It's not that 
you love money itself, as if I fall down and worship a $5 note and put it up on my wall. But it's hope in what money can provide for me. Everything it can give me in the security and the status, the experiences and the travel. I put my hope in money. It's so close to the heart of all of us, isn't it? Because it's the air we breathe. It's the culture we're saturated with. And Paul says that's idolatry. Because it's, it's having both, isn't it? I put my hope in God and I want to put my hope in other things as well. It makes us ask the question, what are, what are my idols? What are your idols? What does my heart manufacture hope in? Because they're the things I've manufactured as idols. Anything other than the true and living God. In syncretism, you, you have God, yes. He's part of my life and I do what I need to do, but I serve other things as well. Things like money control my decisions about the course I do and how much work I take on while I'm a student and almost every other decision as well. Because I hope that they'll give me hope and comfort. But Ezekiel sees the inevitable consequences of God being God and his people being idolaters. God will act. But you might say, Tim, that, that seems a bit harsh. What's so bad with having it a bit both ways? That's just humanism. We want to cover all our bases and manufacture a bit of hope. Well, chapter 16, we're given an insight into what it looks like from God's perspective. That's a hard chapter to even read, isn't it? It's sort of MA rated. It describes things that you wouldn't want to see, even on television, at least for me. It's the story of Jerusalem, told as a metaphor, a, a parable the behaviour of Jerusalem. And we're told in chapter 16, verse 2, that Ezekiel is to confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. Confront Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem doesn't want to hear this. The exiles don't want to hear it. They'd rather bury their heads in the sand and ignore what God is saying. But Ezekiel is to confront them. He's to be like a sledgehammer, a mallet, just carrying on and on, telling them again and again, this is what is going to happen. Confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices, her abhorrent abominations, her disgusting, disgraceful behaviour. And Ezekiel spends seven years as the battering ram. And here's one of the times he does it. He tells the story of Jerusalem, the city, its origins in verses 3 to 5. Well, it was a bastard child, unwanted by its parents, neglected completely, abandoned out in the wilderness. But in verse 6, God happens past and has compassion on this city, on this lost, rejected child. He cleans her up, adopts her as his own, parents her into adulthood. And then at adulthood, he marries her. Now, that that might sound a bit bizarre, but go with it for the moment. He gives her love and security. And he makes a lifelong commitment to this nothing that he's taken under his roof. And in verses 9 to 14, he makes her beautiful. Notice he doesn't marry her because she is beautiful. He marries her and makes her beautiful, makes her desirous, makes her full of everything that's, that's wonderful. And she becomes famous, dazzling. This is Jerusalem, I take it, under King Solomon. The envy of the world, everyone coming to look, one of the wonders of the ancient world. But verse 15, But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. 
You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places. You carried on your prostitution. You went to him, he possessed your beauty. This other man, these other men, you took fine jewellery. In the end, it's not just one, it's any man who'll come and, 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 and have it off with her. In, in verse 20 and 21, it involves child sacrifices. It's part of their idolatry, their religion. You took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. See, they're his children and yet she's taken them and sacrificed them in child sacrifice to these other gods. But it's also political alliances. Verse 25, at every street corner you build your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who I pass by. You engage in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbours with large genitals and aroused my anger. Egyptians, <laughs> they thought they were pretty something. They had a huge penis and that just turned you on. You went for it with him. That's a, that's a scandalous language, isn't it? He's describing something that if it was you... Imagine you've married the love of your life and one day soon after you come home and you find him or her in bed with somebody else. How would you feel? The love of your life that you've married, that you've committed to and they're having it off with someone else and they see you and what do they do? They just keep going. Invite a few more people into the bed. That's what Jerusalem has been doing. How will God respond to such behaviour? See, that's what it looks like from God's perspective. Jerusalem is his. He's done everything for it. He's committed himself to it in in an unbelievable way. He's made her famous and beautiful. And everything that God has given her, she turns against God in prostitution with any man. And she ends up paying the men to come and have sex with her. That's how desperate she is. That's how degraded she is. Can you believe it? That's disgusting, isn't it? That's detestable. And that's why God will act. Some people ask, how could a loving God allow disasters, earthquakes and wars and diseases? But Ezekiel asks the other side of the question. How could God not send disasters on Jerusalem? How could he not? It would be unbelievable if he didn't. And so he says in verse 43, Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I'll surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? So what's God going to do? What's going to happen? Why is it going to happen? But why does Ezekiel tell the exiles about it. He's not talking to Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem. But remember, he's talking to the exiles in Babylon. Why is he telling them? Because his purpose is to demolish their hopes. Demolish their optimism. See, they're saying, yeah, things are bad for us, but it's all going to turn out okay in the end. Look, we've still got the temple. It's standing. Keep your spirits up, guys. It'll all be okay. But God, through Ezekiel, is determined to demolish that easy optimism, those false hopes. One of the survivors of the Vietnam War is a guy called Jim Stocktail. He spent eight years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp, treated brutally, tortured more than 20 times, and torture really meant torture. 
Most people didn't come out of that prisoner of war camp alive. He, he survived, one of the few who did. He was interviewed uh, a few years afterwards, and this is what he said. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that I'd get out and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. And there's hope, isn't it? You see the, the hope that, that played in his life. But the interviewer then asked him, but what about the others? I mean, why didn't they survive? His answer was, because they were optimists. You go, what? <laughs> Isn't he an optimist? How come he survived? They didn't because they were optimists. He said, well, what happened was, they thought that they'd get out by Christmas. They were optimistic. And when they didn't get out at Christmas, what happened? They lost hope. They got lost in despair. See, optimism is only valuable if what you hope for will come. If it's manufactured, if it's fake, it doesn't do you any good. And for people to have hope in things other than God is manufactured hope. And Ezekiel's aim is to demolish it, is to smash it to smithereens, to take a mallet to it and leave it scattered all over the floor. Because only if our fake hopes are demolished will we hope in God and what he brings instead of in false hopes. They hoped in the temple. They hoped as if their glass was still half full and Ezekiel showed them it wasn't. God offers substantial hope. He's the only one who does of resurrection of total transformation into a new person, no longer ravaged by evil and all its effects. And all other hopes need to be de- demolished. Otherwise, I'll hope in them instead of what God promises, the hope that God gives us. Have your hopes been demolished? Because unless they have, you won't hope in God. And he says the second reason, so then they will know that I and Yahweh. I am God. He says that a number of times, chapter 6, chapter 7, in fact, 76 times in the whole book, then you will know that I am God, that Yahweh is the real, the true, the only God. That so you know God in his actions and when he explains his actions by words. Because in one sense, Jerusalem gets demolished unless God has spoken about it beforehand, unless you know why God is doing it, you don't know it's the action of God. But when it happens, and God has spoken about it, told you why it's happening, then you know it is the hand of God. You know God is real. It's like the cross. Jesus dies. The one sent by God who said he would come and give his life as a ransom for many. And in the action the interpreted action, the action plus the words, you know that God is God. There is no other. There's no make-believe God. This is one who's shown himself. So everyone will know that he is God. Let's try and pull a couple of things together, Ezekiel and the Gospel of Jesus. Today has been a dark message, hasn't it? The wrath of God is coming on rebels. It's not pleasant, it's not encouraging is not designed to make you feel optimistic, especially of that naive variety. But it's to help us not stick our head in the sand, not to put on the noise-cancelling headphones and just pretend everything's going to turn out okay. 
holding on to naive hopes that won't actually help anybody. Now, this is a bit of reality therapy. God says to us through Ezekiel, face up to reality. And here's the reality that's revealed in the Gospel of Jesus. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wickedness of people is idolatry. It's all sorts of, it's suppressing the truth of God, refusing to hear him and repent and come to him just like Jerusalem. I was in the library yesterday. I got chatting to a girl and she said she uh, studied theology. I said, oh, great. Um, do you believe what you study? And she said, well, I used to, but I decided not to believe it. It didn't seem to stack up very well. I said, well, what do you believe now? Do you, do you believe nothing? She said, no, no, actually, I, I believe that it'll all turn out okay in the end. I said, how come? He said, well, there's something out there, isn't there? That's what I'd like to believe. That's what Ezekiel is seeking to demolish. Utterly smash to pieces. Because that's suppressing the truth about God, isn't it? Deciding to believe something that has no substance whatsoever to avoid the truth of the real God who's there. And Paul goes on in Romans to say, because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You're walking around saying, listen, things are fine, aren't they? The rain still, still comes. Australia's still safe. My life is still in front of me. There's no judgment coming. I can't believe that. It doesn't make any sense at all. And God says, yes, it is. Don't you believe that because it's not happening yet, it's not going to happen? The part of the gospel that brings hope. Because the gospel of Jesus is about hope, but the prelude to the hope is demolishing false hopes, demolishing vague optimism, because God's judgment is real. If you realise that God is against you, there is nothing more devastating, there is nothing more despair-producing, nothing more hope-demolishing than that realisation. But unless you realise it, you won't find hope, you won't look for hope, you won't come to God for hope. Throw yourself on his mercy and find real hope in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we find this hard to take on board. Please, by your spirit, help us not to suppress the truth, but to welcome it and find real hope in you. Amen.